Well, I'm so glad to be here with you today. You probably know last weekend, we started our second campus on the west side of Evansville. And I gotta tell you, we were totally blown away uh, between two services on Sunday morning. We had over 512 people uh, show up to be at Crossroads West. Isn't that awesome? And so for those of you right now listening from Crossroads West, we love you, we appreciate you, we are so glad that you've decided to join us today. If it's your, your first time or maybe uh, you've been a part of our church for quite some time, we are really glad uh, that you're here with us today. And so on behalf of all of us here at Newburgh, can we just celebrate and welcome those who are tuning in right now from West? <clears throat> Well, hey, last weekend, we began a brand new series called Adopted, where we have been walking through a book in scripture called Ephesians. And and more than a book, this was really a letter written about 2,000 years ago by a guy named Paul. It was addressed to some Christians living in the ancient city of Ephesus, and they were similar to us, okay? But but they were at this point in their life where they needed to be reminded of, of who they were, all right? Now, our identity, whether we know it or not, is kind of the foundation of our life. Our identity, how we view ourselves, totally changes the way that we think, the way that we feel, the way that we make decisions, or our relationships, how we treat our money. It all ultimately goes back to identity, how we see ourselves, okay? And so last weekend, we we said it like this by kicking things off. We said, how you see yourself, it determines how you live. All right, how you see yourself determines how you live. There's more at stake with how you view yourself, where you find your identity and worth and value than you may realize. Now, we've all been called names before. We've all worked really hard to run after some title or some degree. And, And whether we know it or not, most of the time, we're actually unaware of it. At some point in our past, usually when we were younger, somebody called us something. And from that moment forward, much of our life is spent trying to prove that whatever that label or name or title that was thrown onto us isn't true. And so some of you, you walk in here today and maybe in your past, your, your dad called you stupid or you overheard your mom one time say that you were a mistake, you, you were an oops baby, or, or maybe your coach when you were in high school said that you were overweight in front of everybody, called you fat, or, or your teacher called you a failure in front of the entire class. And so much of your life from that point on is to somehow prove that whatever they said about you really isn't true. But here's my question for you. What if much of our life is motivated to prove that something isn't true, but the reality is that it never was true to begin with? You see, our identity shapes us more than we realize. It has the potential to blow up some of the most important parts of our life. This is one of the reasons why my wife Savannah and I are very careful about the words we use with our kids whenever we discipline them. If they disobey, if they don't listen, we send them up to time out. After a few minutes, one of us will go and talk to them and say, okay, do you know why you're in time out? Do you know why you're punished? And they will usually tell us why. And, and at that point, I will then get down on their level. I'll look them in the eye and I'll say, hey, buddy or Vera, that's not who you really are. Right, the reason why we punish you is because you weren't acting like the person that we know that that you are. We always reassure them in that moment that we love them. Why is that? Well, because our words are powerful. We're we're influential in their life. And and we don't want our kids to grow up thinking that their worth and value as a person is determined by their behavior. 
And so that's just true. Our identity is that part about us that is the truest thing about who we are. Now, what's interesting about the book of Ephesians is that Paul spends over, uh, the, over half of his writing talking about who we are in Jesus. And, and so the first three or four chapters are all about who we are. And so he, he clarifies, hey, th- this is who you are because of what Christ has done. And then as a result, here's how we are to live. And, and so he doesn't just immediately step in and, and give us a list of do's and don'ts. He, he doesn't write about, hey, th- this, is, this is who you're to avoid. This is where you're to go. This is what you're to do. No, he begins by reminding us who we are. Why? Because our identity shapes our behavior. And quite honestly, I believe that if we spent a lot more time talking about who we are in Jesus, we'd have to spend far less time talking about how we're supposed to live. Our, be, our behavior is shaped by our identity. And so we're going to look at that today. Again, uh, if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn uh, to the New Testament book of Ephesians. Ephesians can be found towards the back of your Bibles in between the books of Galatians and Philippians. If, if you don't own a Bible, there should be a black Bible right in front of you. If you're worshiping with us at Crossroads West, it should be uh, on that uh, chair below you. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that with you when you leave here today. That's our gift to you. Again, Ephesians can be found in the back third of your Bibles in between the book of Philippians and uh, Galatians and Philippians. And we're going to pick up at the very beginning of chapter 2 today. Now, Paul's going to kind of take us on a journey here uh, because what, what he's going to do is, is he's going to remind us of our identity and, and what our adoption that Christ has done for us, that process of adoption, what it really tells us about our identity. Right, there are certain statements that we can pick up from Paul's words here at the beginning of chapter 2 that tell us a little bit more about who we are uh, as, as followers of Jesus. So check out what Paul writes in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. All right, now, ju- just in case the, these Christians in Ephesus believed that you know, they had somehow earned their adoption into God's family or that they were entitled to a relationship with God or that they were so awesome that God couldn't help but you know, save them, he reminded them that it wasn't always that way, okay? He reminded them of, of what they ultimately deserved. Man, my voice is cracking a lot today. I am so sorry. All right, the truth is this, that good news, good news isn't good news unless there's bad news along with it. Or you don't really appreciate the good news until you realize just how horrible it could be if the bad news became reality. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, earlier this uh, year, I, I took my two oldest kids fishing one evening after dinner, and uh, I didn't want to go to the store, and so I just took some leftover hot dogs. We were going to go catfishing, and, um, and for some reason, I thought it was going to be a good idea to bring our six-month-old at the time puppy, golden retriever puppy, Ryder with us. Now, why I thought that Ryder, a 40-pound dog at the time, jumping off the dock over and over again would also attract fish I don't really know, okay? But if you know Ryder, he loves two things. He loves food and he also loves water. And so we get down to the dock and, I, and I've got a hot dog and I'm trying to bait a treble hook. Now a treble hook is, is three fishing hooks in one and, and I get the hot dog on the treble hook. Now right after I bait the hook, I turn around and, and my little daughter Vera uh, has her line all tangled up. And so I just simply drop the bait right there on the dock, all right? And I begin to untangle her line. Yeah, some of you know what's going to happen. Well, again, Ryder loves food, and, and he didn't know that the hot dog had a hook in it, all right? 
And so he jumped up on the dock after swimming and he swallowed that thing. It didn't even, it didn't even hit, hit me that that could have happened. So I turn around to the side of my poor puppy licking his chops, fishing line hanging out the side of his mouth. All right, and I am just sick to my stomach. I freak out. If you know me, you know how much I love this dog. And so I start Googling what to do if your dog swallows a fishing hook and come to find out it, it's potentially fatal because if they digest it, it could cut a, 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 a slit in their intestines and cause an infection. And so we run up to the house and it's 7.30 at night. We're in the middle of nowhere in Kentucky and the closest vet that could help us was two hours away in Louisville. And so I throw Ryder in the back of my car and, and I head into Louisville at this vet center to see if they can help us out. And we get there, they take Ryder back to get an x-ray and, and the lady comes uh, to the waiting room. She says, okay, we, we've got Got two options for you. We can, we can do surgery, remove the hook from his stomach, and that's going to cost you about $1,600. Yeah, what an expensive fishing trip, right? We didn't catch anything, all right? Uh, or what we can try to do is give him a medication, and it will force him to vomit, and there's a slight chance that he may also vomit the, the trouble hook up with it. But you need to know that it could get caught in his esophagus as it comes up, and, and that would be bad news as well. And so I thanked myself for a few minutes. I said, well, let's just try to make him vomit. She said, okay, that's going to cost you $80. All right, fine. Three minutes later, I mean, I'm praying unlike I've ever prayed before. I'm like, God, please just let that hook come up, all right? And so the vet comes back and she says, well, I've got good news for you. Here's the hook and thanks for bringing it to me. And, um, uh, and I don't know what's worse, the fact that it cost me $80 to force him to vomit or that I was willing to pay $1,600 for him to have surgery the next day. And and so when I walked out of there and I checked out of the hospital later that, that evening, I, I was given a $300 bill, about an $80 vet consultation fee, $40 for the uh, x-ray, and another $80 for the uh, 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 medication to make him vomit. And I got to tell you, I was so relieved. I've never been more excited to pay a $300 bill in my life. Why is that? Well, because I was potentially looking at a $1,600 surgery. How was I going to explain that one? You know what I mean? And so I, I was relieved. I was excited simply because I had more perspective. I realized how bad the situation could have been if he didn't cough it up, if it got stuck, or if we had to do surgery on him. You see, good news isn't good unless it's in the face of, of bad news. And so in verse one of our text, Paul doesn't say, hey, before you met Jesus, it's like you were passed out. You were sick, you were needing healing, you were in a coma. No, he doesn't say that. He said, your former identity, it was like you were dead. You were lifeless. Look at verses two and three. He says this, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, Paul says here. All right, th this was written in past tense. You, you do get that, right? All right, Paul is telling the Ephesians, hey, th this is who you used to be. Do you remember how empty and worthless life felt before you bumped into Jesus? This is why our adoption through Christ helps us understand different aspects of our identity. And so the first statement that our adoption tells us about who we are as followers of Jesus goes like this. You are not who you were. 
You are not who you were. Understanding who we are in Jesus means first realizing who we'd be if it weren't for Jesus. By show fans, how many of you love watching uh, Fixer Upper on HGTV? Anybody? Okay, several of you guys in there. All right, I see you. Uh, well, I think one of the reasons why this is such a popular show is because, you know, a couple goes and buys this dump of a house and it's just run down. Chip and Joanna Gaines come in and totally renovate it. And towards the end of the episode, you're given a preview of what the renovated, restored house looks like. Well, as you walk into each room, all right, the videographer also gives you flashbacks of what the home used to look like, what that house used to, what, what that room or, or how that fire place. Look, you see, here's the thing. You don't fully appreciate the renovation of the house until you're reminded how broken it used to be, how, how far it's come, right? And so by, by saying, hey, th- this is who you used to be, this was Paul's way of saying, look at all that Christ has done in your life. Right, that phrase in verse one is really crucial for us. Paul said, you were dead if you have made the decision to believe in Jesus and, and you trust in him. Now to trust in him doesn't mean that, that you've got all the answers to your questions. It doesn't mean that you have life figured out. It just means that, hey, that, that, that's a better offer on the table. And, and I realize how broken I am, how, how much I fall short. And I'm choosing to believe that at the end of the day, Jesus is gonna take care of me. And so if you've made that decision, then you know what? Who you were before Jesus is not who you are now. Who you were before is is not who you are now. But let's be really honest about something, okay? A lot of us wrestle with that. It's it's hard letting go of what happened. Now, this is just my opinion, but I'm right, okay? Many of us don't feel or live much differently than before we became a Christian, not because of how God sees us, but because of how we see ourselves. You see, we tend to define ourselves based upon certain moments that honestly, God has overlooked, he's wiped clean, he's he's moved past it, but do you know who hadn't moved past it? Me and you. That's why in another letter, Paul says it like this in Colossians chapter three, verse three, he said, hey, hey, you out there, you Christian, you died. And now your life is hidden with Christ in God. Uh, Several years ago when I was living down in Texas, I did my first funeral ever for a guy in our church by the name of Pat. Now, I didn't know Pat all that well, but he had been part of our church for the previous few years. And evidently, Pat lived a a pretty uh, wild, rough life. When he was first diagnosed with cancer, about three years before his funeral, he became a Christian. He gave his life to Jesus. Well, when I met with his family planning out the funeral, his wife told me that for whatever reason, uh, they wanted two of Pat's college buddies to speak at the funeral. Now, you gotta know that this is always a little bit of a risk, especially when you're not used to public speaking because you don't know what the people are gonna get up there and say and and how do you recover, you know what I'm saying? And people get nervous and they just start saying awkward things. And and so I decided to go along with it. It was really how she wanted the, the funeral to go. Well, the morning of the funeral, friend number one got up and he talked about what a womanizer Pat was back in his college days. I mean, Pat just had so many one-night stands, he couldn't even keep track of them anymore. And boy, he had quite a reputation on the campus. And man, that, that's who Pat was. And man, if I could only be like Pat, the guy said, uh, that he, he was just, he was the guy that you wanted to be like. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, what, what am I gonna say after this, <laughs> you know? But there's one more speaker between this guy talking, and when I'm to get up to talk, well, the second guy wasn't much better. In fact, he was much worse. 
as he makes his way to the front of the church and he walks up onto the platform, I notice that he's doing this consistent motion. He's got something in his other hand. I look over and the dude, the brother is drinking a beer and he's got a six pack in his other hand. Now it's nine o'clock in the morning. (laughs) And instantly my mind was taken back to, am I at a family reunion in Kentucky, you know? (laughs) And so as he talks about how well Pat could hold his liquor and how much of a man he was in that way, he, he's drinking beer and he starts slurring his words. And, and here was his tie-in. He held the six-pack up in the air and he said, every time you and I see a six-pack, every time we see a beer, let's think of Pat. He then took the six-pack, put it on top of his coffin, and that was his tribute to Pat. Now, this was my first funeral ever. There's some things they just don't teach you in seminary, all right? So how do you recover? What do you say next? And to be honest with you, I I can't remember exactly what I said. But you know, if I were to do that funeral over again, do you you know what I probably would have said after his two buddies got up and, and spoke? I probably would have said, you know what? Pat sure seemed like a fun guy to be around, and and a version of Pat's past has certainly been talked a lot about today, but but let me be really clear about something. The Pat that has just been described for the past few minutes, that version of Pat, he he died a long time ago. Now, who who Pat is now is not who he was. How can I say that? Look at what Paul says. Verse 4, he says it like this. But because of his great love for us, God, not us, God, who is rich in mercy. Despite what some of us think or what some of us have been trained to believe, that the terms of our adoption is not contingent upon cleaning ourselves up or becoming a more lovable version of us. Okay, God doesn't choose us and then obsess over a better version of us that honestly we are always failing to become. God is not constantly thinking about what it would look like if we made more improvements or if we, we became this better version of us, a more improved version of ourselves. And so the second thing that our adoption tells us goes like this. If you are in Christ, you are not what you do. You are not what you do. You see, this challenge is how many of us were were taught in church at a very early age. You see, obedience apart from a deep-rooted understanding of what Christ has done for us on the cross, enabling grace to be our reality, is nothing but empty religion where our adoption is contingent upon maintaining a certain standard. And you know what? Nothing sends people to hell more than religion. This may explain why while some of us think that, that God's love for you is, is hanging by a thread. It's not. You fear that, have I done enough? Do I need to do more? One of the reasons why we're trapped into this thinking, if we're really honest with ourselves, is because we love the people in our life based upon what they can do for us, based upon how convenient it is to love them, how they might serve us, right? I want you to imagine for just a moment that that you are adopting two children. At the last second before the adoption is finalized, the social worker comes to you and says, I'm sorry, but you can only adopt one child. Here are the profiles on the two different children. Go home tonight, think it over, and then get back with me in the morning about which child you want to adopt. Well, child number one is categorized as a low-risk adoption. This child has a great personality. You look at his family history. He's got great health and 
You've hung out with him a few times. He's easy to be around. He's just a lovable kid. And and again, he's constantly encouraging you. And uh, you you look at his family history. There's no real red flags. I mean, this kid is a low-risk adoption. It seems like a win-win for everybody involved. There's chemistry with your children. But then you open up profile number two, okay? And it's a different story. This child's a high-risk adoption. He's got, angry, he's got anger issues. He, he has seen a therapist since he was a, a toddler. He, he randomly just starts lighting things on fire. He, maybe you read in his profile, he used the neighbor's cat as t- target practice for his BB gun, all right? He, you know, he, he acts out in inappropriate ways. You just don't know what he's gonna do. You look at his family history and, and he's got heart disease in his background. He's got cancer in his background. His dad was a criminal. His mom was an alcoholic. There are some significant red flags with child number two. No wonder he's a high-risk adoption. And so which child would you choose? I think that most of us in here, we'd probably go with child number one. He's low risk. He's more lovable. It would require less of us to love this child. It wouldn't require much sacrifice. But child number two, it's a different story. That, That dude's a mess. It's gonna constantly be be a source of frustration if we choose to adopt him. Now, here's my real question for you. Which child are you? Which child do you more identify with? Are you a child who's maybe categorized as high-risk adoption or low-risk adoption? Now, our first reaction when when, when you hear that question is probably to think, oh, I'm I'm child number one. I'm lovable. I'm a low-risk adoption, right? If there's one child that I identify most with, it's child number one. I mean, I think to myself, who wouldn't want to adopt me? You know what I mean? (laughs) Why do you laugh? (laughs) But do you know what Paul would say? As offensive as it sounds, we're more like child number two. You see, in another letter, he, he said this about himself. He said, you know what? I am the chief of all sinners. See, there's something deep inside of us that is broken, that is off, that is dark. And that's why we identify more with the second child than the first And so in verse three, Paul says that because of that condition we have, we're we're really deserving of God's wrath. We're born into this world with something off about us. We're controlled by what's evil and what's broken. And the proof of this is that no matter what you do, it's never enough, right? You'll never have enough money. You'll never be skinny enough. You'll never be pretty enough. You'll never have enough. You'll never be successful enough. You see, the reason why we compare ourselves, we talk poorly about others, we withhold forgiveness, or or we put pressure upon ourselves to measure up to those around us, or we look for ways to get back at somebody in our past that has hurt us, is because there's something deep inside us that identifies more with the second child than the first. And so here's my point. We are not adopted. We are not adopted by Jesus because we deserve it or because of how awesome we are. That's not why we're adopted. No, we're adopted simply because Paul said that our heavenly father is rich in mercy. One father by the name of Derek Lowe helped adopt over 11 children. He said it like this. Adoption is costly, exhausting, expensive, and outrageous. Buying back lives costs so much. It doesn't make sense on paper. But when God set out to redeem us, It killed him. This leads me to the next statement that's made in our adoption. It goes like this. You are what Jesus has done. 
Right, you, you are what, what Jesus has done. You are who purchased you. You see, this statement, if you really believed it, if it really sat deep inside of you and, and, and you really understood the fullness of its meaning, it would lead to a lot of freedom. You could experience more joy in life. But to actually live in this reality has the potential to turn everything around for us for the better. And so the question isn't for you, do you find your identity in something or someone? Look, regardless if you follow Jesus or not, maybe today's your first time to church in decades, or, or maybe you haven't not been to church in decades. It doesn't matter. You are running after something. You are pursuing something that is telling you, here's where your worth is found. Here's where your value is found. And so that thing, that feeling, that person, that promotion, whatever it is, it's telling you where your identity can be found. And so it's not a question of, are you finding your identity somewhere? The question is, where are you, where are you trying to find it? What, what defines your worth? And let me just be really straight with you. If it's not Jesus for you, then it's only a matter of time until the pursuits in life that we're chasing after are going to let us down. They're going to rip us off and they're going to make us feel even lonelier and emptier than before. I mean, many of our stories goes like this. You thought that you were one promotion, one degree, one new gadget, one new outfit, one relationship away from experience, acceptance and wholeness and peace and contentment in your life. And yet it hadn't happened yet, right? And, and so if it hasn't happened now, you're just probably gonna try to do more and more and more of it. And so my question for you is, if you keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, do you really think that it's gonna lead to anything different? Don't you think you could just end up in the same place that you were before, maybe in a, a deeper, bigger way? You see, in some ways, if we're honest, we feel a little bit like zombies. We're, we're alive on the outside, but deep down we're dead. And if that's where you are, take a look at how Paul describes the exchange that happened whenever we were adopted. Verse five, God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him. We have victory, Paul says, in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. In other words, he gives us something even when we don't deserve it. And this is found in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Paul says it again, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Now faith means that, okay, I'm choosing to believe that that's true. I still have questions. Some things don't add up to me. But I think this is the best offer, the best deal I'm ever going to get. And so we respond to the grace, this gift, by choosing to believe by faith, by trust. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that nobody can boast, nobody can brag about it, and nobody can post about it on Instagram. It's not, not by anything that we do. All right, Paul is basically saying right here that, that when Jesus was resurrected, when he came back to life on that Sunday morning 2,000 years ago, in a weird kind of way, we walked out with him. His victory is our victory. You see, because if, if you've chosen to believe in Jesus, you're categorized as in Christ. And so his benefits are now our benefits. His rewards are now our rewards. What's his is ours as well. And we're reminded again right here of who we were. I mean, death is what happened when our greed, our lust, our jealousy, our, our pride, our cheating and hatred trapped us and then it severed us from union, from a relationship with our creator that we were made for ultimately. You see, our identity in that moment was lost. It was forgotten. And it's like we became that person in life that we always said, I'm never gonna become him. I'm never gonna become her. But you know what? You did anyways. Last weekend... I challenge us to, to think of a name, a label, a title that, 
maybe you hear whispered in your mind something that you've held on to. You, you know it's not true, but it's motivated you a lot in life. And then I said, hey, take that title and finish this sentence. That sentence went like this. I am more than a alcoholic. I am more than a failure. I am more than a, whatever that is for you. I have been chosen by God. And so the challenge last week was fill this in on your own time and just select two days where before your day begins, you just repeat this over and over and over again to yourself. You just repeat it in your mind. Now, I wish that living in our identity was as easy as pressing a button or flipping a switch, but it's not. It requires discipline. It requires training ourselves to think differently. That's what repentance means. It, it means to think differently because how we think will ultimately affect the way that, that we live. And and again, it's a lot easier to talk about how to live in our identity than it is to actually live in our identity. It's easy to talk about, but it's harder to do. And I think some of us, we're becoming more and more aware of the things that we thought were true, but are really lies. And so it's about replacing lies with truth. So let me just give you one example of how I became aware of this this past week, and I had to actually exercise this over and over again. One of my best friends called me up and said, hey, I, I've got to get some things off my chest. I've got some issues, and, and those issues are about you. <laughs> oh, you ever had that conversation before? But you know what? When you love and you trust somebody who has your best, uh, best mind, his best intentions for you, you, you can trust what they say. And so I said, okay, well, what, what's going on? And he said, well, man, I, I just, I've noticed I've noticed that lately when we've been talking, when we've been talking on the phone, that you tend to compare yourself a lot to other people. And, and I could be wrong about this, he said, but, but my sense is that you compare yourself to other people so that you feel better about yourself. And I'm wondering what, what kind of insecurities are, are motivating that for you? He then went on to talk about how, you know, I, I know, Patrick, you struggle with anger and sometimes you, you just lose your temper. We've talked about that before, but I've seen you do that more and more lately and, and your anger's kind of gotten the best of you. And at that point, I mean, that just really ticked me off, all right? <laughs> Hung up on him, showed him who's boss, right? <laughs> but you know why that conversation was really painful? It's because he was, he was right. It was true. And so I got off the phone with Garrison, and I asked myself some really tough questions What's the root of that? What, why, what, what's motivating it? What's the issue beneath the issue? Where are my insecurities coming from? And after some questions, after some prayer, I come to realize it's, I feel this pressure and I'm embarrassed to admit it. I don't like talking about it, but I'm just gonna say it. I wanna be good enough. I wanna be successful enough. I don't feel like I measure up. And, and so that's why I feel like I've gotta control. And when I'm not in control, then I get angry. And then when I feel like I'm less than who I should be, then, then that's when I compare myself to make me feel superior. And you know what God has been teaching me? When I find myself in those moments, that's when I'm living like an heir who, uh, as an orphan who's been rejected rather than an heir who's been chosen. And so Jesus says something different to us today. He gives us grace. And grace says, look, you, you can have what you don't deserve. 
And because of Jesus, grace says that that you don't need to maintain some standard. You don't need to abide by some list of rules in order to be good enough. Why? Because Jesus has already done that for us. Jesus has already lived the life that we fail to live over and over again. It's all about Jesus' performance on the cross. It's not about what we, what we do. And, and so some of us, we walk in here today and we're hearing voices like, I, I'm, nothing, I'm nothing but a failure. But do you know what grace says to you because of what Jesus has done? Jesus says, no, you're, you're not a failure. You're my child. You're not a mistake, you're not an alcoholic, you're not an addict. No, because of grace, Jesus says, no, you're my son. You're not just somebody with some physical disabilities or special needs. No, because of what Jesus has done for you, God looks at you and says, you're my daughter. I've chosen you. And that's good news, isn't it? And so that's where our identity can be found. Now, we can be adopted because of Jesus. Now, I want you to listen to this because I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this. What's interesting is that our adoption has been made possible because Jesus was adopted when he was younger. What I mean by that? Well, we're told that, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit inside of a young teenage woman named Mary. Her fiance at the time, a guy by the name of Joseph, had every right at that moment to abandon her, to reject her, and even to have her stoned because from all looks, it, it seemed as if she had been unfaithful. She, she was going to expect a child, yet he hadn't had sex with her, and so who is she sleeping around with? And so Joseph was going to divorce her, was going to leave her, but instead, Joseph became a stepfather to Jesus and protected him as a boy. He provided for Jesus. Joseph was ridiculed and ostracized by his family for his decision to adopt Jesus. And that decision alone brought about a lot of shame to Joseph and a lot of disgrace to his family. He was shunned. People didn't want anything to do with Joseph because of that decision to adopt Christ at a young age. And so Joseph took Mary in as his own and took Jesus in as his own. Joseph adopted Jesus. And yet as a little boy, That was simply a foreshadowing of what Christ would one day do for us. He chose us, but it cost him a lot. He adopted us, but but it required that that he die, that, that he be sacrificed. You see, Jesus chose us even when we rejected him. Our Jesus still hangs with us. Even when he had every right to serve us with divorce papers, he's never left us. We are what Jesus has done, and so that means that there's nothing we can do that will ever undo what Jesus did. Let's end by looking at what Paul says in the last verse of our text, verse 10, chapter two. He says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now that word handiwork is really interesting. In the Greek, it comes from the Greek word uh, poema. Now poema is this uh, term to describe some beautiful piece of artwork that was created for the enjoyment and and pleasure of other people. Poema is actually where we get the word poem from. Okay, so it, it causes delight. It creates delight in other people. And so Paul says, look, you weren't just saved from something, but you were also saved for something. You you were given purpose as well. Now, now we're not saved because of our good works, Paul says. No, we're saved for good works. We're saved for purpose. And so that leads us to the last statement that our adoption says about our identity, and that is that you are free to live from who you are. You are free to live from, from who you are. In other words, we don't have to live for our identity. We don't have to work for God's affection. No, we can live from our identity. We can live from the fact that we are accepted. 
Around here at Crossroads, we say it like this, that whenever you're saved, whenever you, you bump into Jesus and you begin trusting him, you aren't just saved from something, but you're also saved for something. You're given purpose, you're given meaning. You see, God designed life beyond the orphanage of this world to be this thrilling adventure that's, that's full of joy, where we join him in the work that he's doing all around the globe to restore, to redeem, and to reclaim what's been lost and broken. And so this is why whenever you serve and, and you put other people before you and, and you, you focus on their needs and their wants, there's a lot of joy in that. Sometimes you feel like I've never been more alive than, than when I was serving someone else. That's what poema is all about. That's being God's handiwork. In October of 2011, the Associated Press did, did an interesting story about a, a name-changing ceremony for 285 girls in India. Every one of these girls had been named Nakusa at birth, which translates to mean unwanted. It's one of the most common names for girls in India because typically the families want sons and instead a daughter is given to them and so female babies are often aborted or neglected all throughout the country and they're given this name, Nakusa, which means unwanted, rejected. We don't want you. And so at this renaming ceremony, it was an attempt to, to give these girls who were called unwanted a new name. It was an attempt to restore their dignity and honor. The article said this, the 285 girls, they were wearing their best outfits with barrettes, braids, and bows in their hair. They were lined up on stage to receive certificates with their new names along with a small flower bouquet. The article then listed the names of the girls the, the, the names that the girls had chosen. Before the ceremony, Nakusa, unwanted, but now they chose names that meant something like prosperous, beautiful, good, purpose, delight. You see, in one way or another, every name communicated a desire to, to be wanted, to be needed, to be significant, to, to have purpose, and to live with this sense of mission. You see, they had been rejected and neglected. They had been born into this world completely overlooked and, and abandoned. They had been discarded and forgotten, but you know what? Not anymore. Well, now, now they had a new name. They had Poema. I don't know what your story's like. I don't know what you walk in here with today. And I'm not a betting man, but, but, but I do bet that a lot of us, we need to have a defining moment with God where we realize who we really are. And we allow the new name that Christ has given us to become our everyday reality. It's time that we replace the lies that are constantly being repeated in our mind over and over again. The lies of, of who we think that we are with the truth of, of what Jesus has done and what he did. And, and so let me just leave you with a question as we close, all right? All right, throughout these 10 verses that we've looked at today, Paul described our adoption as this process of going from death, of being lifeless, to having life, to, to vitality. Now, if we look around our, our world today, it's really ju just the opposite. Everyone lives to die. Life is short, live for yourself. Do what you think that you deserve. Do it your way. Fulfill yourself. Follow your dreams because you only have so long to live and then you die. And so you live, then you die, and that's it. And if that's the case, where's their meaning? How can you find significance in that? Well, what's the point? And so my question for you goes like this. Are you living to die? Or are you dying to live? 
Are you living to die or are you dying to live? The truth is you're one or the other. If you're just merely living to die, it's because you really don't know who you are. You're just confused. Others of us, we're dying to live. But what does that really mean? You see, one time Jesus was teaching to a bunch of people and, and he started describing what, what life in him can be like and how we can experience joy. And, and he said it like this, hey, whoever finds their life will lose it. In other words, whoever just lives to die and thinks that this world is all there is, eventually you're gonna die and it's gonna not be worth any of it. It's gonna be pointless. But Jesus said, whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Whoever dies to himself, whoever dies to herself will actually find what true life is all about. That, that's where joy is. You see, our adoption frees us to live from our name, not for our name. And there's no pressure involved. Jesus makes that clear. But because of what he did for us on the cross, we're now in this place where we can live from and not for our identity. People who lack purpose, you simply don't know who you are. And so more than just giving you a list of things that you need to do, perhaps today you just need to be reminded about how to think and what it really looks like to live in the reality of this new name. But I'm gonna give you a really practical challenge today. You see, we have a really unique opportunity to be poema to a dark, lost, and broken world. We've all probably seen on social media and the news this past week, pictures, videos of the devastation that uh, all the hurricanes have caused in Houston and in Florida more recently. I mean, li lives have just been torn apart. L lives have, have been lost and, and people are just desperate for hope. That everything that they had is now gone. One of the hardest hit areas in Florida is the city of Jacksonville. Well, it just so happens that we have a sister church down in the Jacksonville area, Christ Church of Jacksonville. Todd Bussey actually is on staff there. And if you are new around here, Todd served on our staff as a pastor for about 30 years before we sent him down there to serve on the staff at Christ Church at Jacksonville. And it just so happens that Todd's campus is kind of like the primary central hub for relief workers, for volunteers, because one of the neighborhoods near Todd's campus has had over 1,200 homes affected by this flood. Over half of those homes have been completely destroyed. And so here's what we need you to do. Here's how you can be poima today. We need money, we need supplies, and we need a bunch of able individuals to actually go down to Jacksonville and help bring about relief in a really desperate situation. All right, we need everything from, from chainsaws to, to axes to uh, drywall putty and, and tools and, and everything in between. And so we want to be a hub for supplies and, and even individuals where we can send to uh, those who, who are just in the midst of a really desperate situation right now. If that intrigues you whatsoever, if you feel like I'm talking to you right now, here's what I want you to do. Take out your phone and I want you to text AID to 25827. All right, AID to 25827. If that's not your thing, simply log on to our website, cccgo.com slash Irma, and you can find out more details from there. Uh, th this is something that we've just pieced together within the last couple days. And, and so we're, we're still finalizing some of the details. We're still identifying team leaders. But uh, what we're going to do is we're going to take a couple 15 passenger vans down to Jacksonville and, and just take as many people as we need to, starting as soon as I believe this Wednesday. And so if that intrigues you uh, in any capacity whatsoever, I want to challenge you to consider being a part of, of bringing relief to those who are lost and broken and are just hurting right now. And let me just be really clear about something. This is inconvenient. 
It's gonna cost you something. Or you, you might not have your picture paraded on the news or on your Instagram or Facebook, but I promise you, if you say, you know what, I, I'm in, I wanna be poema to the lost and broken world, you might just know a little bit more of what Jesus was saying when he said, look, if you wanna follow after me, you gotta die to yourself, you gotta surrender, you gotta take up your cross and then follow me. And I think, I could be wrong about this, but I think afterwards, you might find out what joy and being poema is all about. Let's pray. Jesus, I I love what you're doing in my life. I love what you're doing in the life of this church. And God, I think I speak on behalf of all of us in here, all of us at Crossroads West, all of us in the chapel, all of us who are listening right now online, that you've been really patient with us. And God, even when we talk about poema, being your handiwork, being your, your artwork to a world that, that, that needs it, you use us in spite of us. So even when you had every reason to reject us, even when you had every reason to leave us as, as orphans, you chose us. And that's precisely when you said, you know what? I choose you. I, I got you. I'll take care of you. And so would you just teach us more and more each day what it really looks like to live out who we really are. It's easy to talk about, it's easy to teach. What was difficult is to begin training ourselves to think differently, to replace those lies with truth. We lift up all the victims in Houston and all throughout Florida who've been affected by the hurricanes. Lord Jesus, may you bring relief to them, restore them, and may this be an opportunity for your church to shine in the midst of darkness, to provide hope in the midst of despair, because that's what you're all about. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.